There's one more empty seat on the front row. I just left if anybody wants it. (laughs) Uh, Our scripture reading this morning is from Galatians. As noted, we continue in a series in Galatians this morning. Our scripture reading is Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26 through chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, Give your attention, if you would, to the reading of God's Word. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Greek, Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that he might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Father, would you now open our eyes to see things that we will not see unless you do. Would you open our eyes? Would you reorder our loves and then redirect our steps that we might live out your calling? You're calling us by name into your glory and purposes. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, there is a chance that you might be a Robert Ludlum fan even if you've never opened a Robert Ludlum book, like me. You see, uh, I was swept up in a story that Robert Ludlum wrote and then was committed to the big screen, The Bourne Identity, the story of stories of Jason Bourne. And while I realize maybe I'm not the Ludlum fan that I might be, maybe I'm a fan of the cinematographer, the movie producer, and those that took this story and made it sing. It's a fascinating story of a a man who has lost his identity. And I don't mean his wallet. He doesn't know who he is. He's suffering from extreme memory loss, and he's got to figure out who he is. And he doesn't know where to start. But it's not just fictional characters that stumble their way through trying to figure out who they are. 
Walker Percy in Lost in the Cosmos, subtitled The Last Self-Help Book, writes, You live in a deranged age, more deranged than usual, because despite great scientific and technological advances, man has not the faintest idea of who he is or what he is doing. He, he later goes on to say, Why is it possible to learn more in 10 minutes about the Crab Nebula in Taurus, which is 6,000 light years away, than you presently know about yourself, even though you've been stuck with yourself all your life? <laughs> well, he's on to something. Uh, if you grew up in the 60s or have seen those films, uh, it wasn't unusual to have a cutaway from some film of somebody saying, well, I've got to go find myself. And it was usually out west uh, that they went to find themselves, I noted. Well, what if, in all the confusion, what if you heard a story that explained your story or your search? You see, that's, that is what Scripture is. It is a narrative and it unveils a story that explains you and me and this world. And in that story is this one that we look at today. The text before us today from the Apostle Paul crystallizes before us an identity. It's almost as if he, what he lays before us are the pieces three pieces of an ID card. When Jason Bourne sets out on his journey, he says at one point, I don't even know what I'm looking for. And in his search and ours, as we look, Paul shows us three pieces of an ID card. That as we take these three pieces and piece them together, we get a picture. In fact, we get an identity that is the identity that you were made for. It is your identity that Paul brings before us and says, take a look in the mirror. This is who you are. Now, before we do that, it's just fair to note that there are a lot of failed attempts um, I won't tell you in the movie, in case you want to watch it, how long it takes Jason Bourne to find. He does. His identity, sorry. It wouldn't have been a story if he didn't, but he does discover who he is. But there are a lot of attempts. We don't even know where to start. My friend Tom Wood says a lot of people approach this attempt to find their identity by trying to package it under the umbrella of I am who I am connected to. Um, I think I first discovered this as a middle schooler, trying to figure out who do I connect to, who are my friends. I was not cool, but I made some cool friends. And, and that got me through some pretty rough waters. I am who I'm connected to. Maybe that explains what we are watching with Facebook and Twitter and how many followers do you have? And uh, Instagram, who are we connected to? We can look for ourselves in that. Or maybe it's I am what I am. The shape of my body or the things that I own 
or the car that I drive. I am what I am. You know, how many parents along the way have made well-intentioned efforts to help a young child say, you know, it doesn't matter what other people think of you. It's what you think of you. You, you think of yourself. You be yourself. The fact is, we have an entire generation of adults who don't know who they are because they were told to look inside to find themselves. Or maybe it's, I am what I do. What do you do? What do you do? Isn't that the second question we ask one another? Who are, what is your name? What do you do? It may be that we find our identity in vocation, skills, abilities. Sometimes, even those things that we find our identity in doing are things that we do for God. You can find your identity in ministry or in a lifestyle that we're all called to. Or maybe it's things that we stop doing for God. But you know, and Paul is addressing this one head on, attempts to find ourselves in religious performance never get there. We never find our identity in those religious performance things. They yield no results other than frustration and inability, and we can't wear that as an identity very long, very well. But you see, not only do they yield no results, they take us the wrong direction. And that's really what Paul is after here. Those religious attempts to find your identity in what you do or what you don't do is what Paul is addressing head on. These attempts, you see, put us on the interstate going the opposite direction from where we are attempting to go. And what we need is we need a GPS that reroutes, rerouting because you silly driver, you missed the turn. I'm rerouting you to get you where you said you were going. That's exactly what Paul is after here. If you've been with us for a little while, you've, you've, you've heard us as we have explored Galatians, come to terms with the fact that our efforts, our religious efforts to get there are malformed and misunderstood. Maybe noble attempts, but they won't get us there, and what we need is to be rerouted. So here's the point. Friends, it is in Christ. It is in Christ only and nowhere else that we find ourselves. You can go out west, you can go to another continent, but you're there with you. (laughs) You're still there. It is only in Christ that you find your identity, where the unattached are attached. And we'll never find our true identity until we find ourselves, in Paul's language, in Christ. I want to show you a little bit about the structure of this passage before we go any further, and I think it'll give us the key to unlock this passage. There's a verse that precedes the ones we started with today, verse 25 of chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you might look at chapter 3, verse 25, where you will read, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Note the words, no longer. 
We are no longer under a guardian. More about that in a moment. That was the theme last week, if you want to go back and listen. We are no longer under a guardian now that faith has come. Now look at the end of the passage for today, the last verse, chapter 4, verse 7, where you will read, you are what? No longer a slave, but a son. No longers are our bookends for this passage. And the very first verse that follows the first no longer is the key. It's the key that gives us a handle because it takes a phrase from both bookends and joins them together into a compelling, vivid, life-altering assertion and affirmation of the truth. Is verse 26, which says, You are no longer, I'm sorry, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. So take a look at that later and use that as you begin to wrestle even further with what we won't cover today. But, but verse 26 seems to unlock the box as we explore this. So there are three pieces of an ID card that Paul lays in front of us. And the first one you'll see in verses 26 and 27, where he says, In Christ, we are sons of God. That is who you are. Those who have been, he says, baptized into Christ, that is, who have put on Christ... Uh, just as a side note, uh, Paul is not suggesting that the water that, it, that is employed in baptism is what makes you a son or a daughter of Christ. It is a way of talking about being introduced into and united to and connected to. Baptized in means to be welcomed in and included in Christ. To put on Christ the way you have put on clothes is something that occurs by faith. He uses the word faith five times in, this, in these few verses, in verses 22 through 25. It's the theme of the whole epistle. Justification through faith. So in summary, it is faith that secures our union with Christ. That's explicit in verse 26. Baptism, baptism simply signifies in an outward and visible way what is true on the inside. Similarly, in Colossians 1, Paul says you've been transferred from one kingdom to another, from darkness to light. He's talking ultimately about our conversion. We read about it in, uh, in Ephesians 1 earlier when we were predestined to be adopted. It was a part of God's plan and institution of this project of redemption that we'll explore a little bit later. But bottom line is that God is no longer your judge God is no longer the absentee owner. In language that stretches our abilities to understand, what we read here and in the rest of the New Testament, and old, frankly, is that God is our Father, and we are sons and daughters. You know, when you, when you got up this morning or went to bed last night, or lived this past week, there was some notion of God. I remember in high school once, as a high school or a teenager, thinking, you know, I have thought about God three days in a row. 
That was, that was big. I, was, I realized there was something going on. But what was going on was I, this image that I had in the back of my mind was being pulled to the forefront by God to be able to consider who he was. And what Paul is after here is saying when that image, whatever that image is in the back of your head, comes to the forefront, what he wants you to see, us to see, is that God is your father. We didn't plan this for Father's Day. But what we're talking about is a father who is without fault. There's not a dad in the room who doesn't remember ways that he has failed. But we're talking about a father who never failed to love and never fails to tenderly love his own. I can't not quote J.I. Packer here. (laughs) Some of you will chuckle. It just... uh, would not be complete without his words from knowing God. If you want to judge, he writes, how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christ very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament better than the Old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish or religious, is is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father, you see, is the Christian name for God. He goes on to write, our highest privilege, our highest privilege and our deepest need. Stretch it out. Our highest privilege, our deepest need is to experience the holy God as our loving father. To approach him without fear and to be assured of his fatherly care and concern. And that right there, you are sons of God, sons and daughters of God will flip your life right side up. And to know that to that one, you approach without fear, without hesitation. The way a child runs to his dad when trouble is near. You are sons of God. That's the first piece of that ID that's been missing. But there's a second piece. Not only are we sons and daughters of God, Paul says in verse 28, read it, in Christ we are all one. We are one. We are sons of God, but in Christ we are one. The culture longs for this. The culture has stretched its abilities to to come up with Ways to express the oneness of the world and trying to deal with the brokenness of the world. I'm old enough to remember watching the video of Michael Jackson and all the children sing, We Are the World. You'll find it on YouTube. We are the world. There comes a time, he sings. When we need a certain call, when the world must come together as one. There are people dying and it's time to lend a hand, the greatest gift of all. 
a hand of life. We can't go on pretending day by day that someone somewhere will soon make a change. We're all a part of God's great big family. And the truth, you know, love is all we need. We are the world. We are the children. We're the ones who make a brighter day. So let's start giving. There's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. It's true we'll make a better day, just you and me. That was 1985. A lot has come and gone. And the news is filled with exhibits of the fact that wanting a better world doesn't make one. Five years ago, Guy Sebastian, in a song entitled Get Along, sings, Dear God, dear soul, dear Mary, Muhammad, can we just get along? Can we just get along? Maybe if we'd work together, we'd already have a heaven here on earth. Well, it's the right ambition. But last year, this year, earlier this year, Jacob Whiteside sings. Why can't we all just get along? Do we want to be here 10 years later singing the same sad song? It don't have to take our last breath to admit that we're wrong. Why can't we all just get along? I see a city where haters go, a city where we're all still talking. I see beautiful lights that turn battlefields into paradise. I'll be the first one to lay down my gun, and I'll be there waiting for you. There's got to be common ground. The culture longs for this. The church inhabits this. The church of Christ, the body of Christ, inhabits this oneness. Not that all distinctions are obliterated, but there is something as you come to Christ that the differences that mark our lives, race, culture, st status, are removed as barriers. We've got a long way to go here. But what God in Christ offers you as your identity is a oneness that the world is jealous of. The world cannot manufacture what the gospel creates as we are united to Christ and then to one another. Race. Paul says it's neither Jew nor Greek. We could say black or white or brown or yellow. Class, there's no slave or free. That's a class distinction. There's no gender separation in terms of fellowship in the body of Christ. Male and female are welcomed together. Martin Luther, who we celebrate this year, we've talked about before, said that list that Paul wrote, that list could go on. The list might be extended indefinitely. There is neither preacher nor hearer, neither teacher nor scholar, neither master nor servant, etc. And then he says, in the matter of salvation, rank, learning, righteousness, influence count for nothing. We are one in Christ. Distinctions are not obliterated. I'm still male. But there are no barriers to fellowship. And what we have in common, and you'll see this if you travel. If you travel outside these borders, or now even in these borders, 
how diverse this culture is. And when Hispanics and Anglos and Japanese and Koreans, you know, not far from here, there's a, there's a, there's a gathering called Crossroads of the Nations. And on any given week, there are do- a dozen or more ethnicities that share space, that share fellowship. Once a month, they have a joint worship service with Chinese and Japanese who are not known to have gotten along very well in, this, in the history of this world. There's something in Christ that shatters those barriers. And while we have a long way to go, we are one. We are sons and daughters. We are one fellowship. We are one people. And in verse 29, we find the third piece. In Christ, we are Abraham's offspring. We take our place. You know, you don't, uh, if, you, if you ask young people today, one of the things that's missing is some sense of place and time. We live in a world that changes so rapidly. I mean, moment by moment, the world shifts. But there is a, a yearning in young hearts today for something that is enduring. There are churches that form around the, the, around the profession of the historic creeds of the church. Because it's a signal that we're, this is bigger than who we are in this moment. And what Paul says, yeah, you're Abraham's offspring. You're living in the fulfillment of a promise made long, long, long ago. And it wasn't in the pages of the New Testament even when it started. If you think back, if you think back with me to to Exodus chapter 6, where God comes to his people and says, I will be your God. I will rescue you. I will free you from slavery. I will give you, a, slavery is gone, freedom is yours, you are redeemed, and you have a new, a renewed relationship with me. That was his promise to Moses and to Abraham. As they live this out, we, just, we step into that stream of promise, a promise made, a promise taking shape, and then a, a promise that points to another fulfillment. Well, that's where it's a fascinating story. You see, God called Moses to lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt into freedom and to then inherit a land. That freedom was secured by Passover where the angel of the Lord passed over the homes that were covered in the blood. The the pledge was, or the deal was, uh, you sacrifice this lamb and you put the blood on the door frame of your home, and every home that has that blood, I pass over. But those that don't have that blood on the door frame, there's a penalty that comes with rebellion and has led to slavery. And the penalty is the death of a firstborn. So that in every home, there was either a dead lamb or a dead firstborn. We know that 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 Passover gives us a picture of a new Passover, of a new 
lamb slain for the sins of the world. But you also know, you may know this, 40 days after Passover is when they landed at Mount Sinai where the law was given to serve, as we read last week, as a tutor, as a tour guide of sorts. A tutor to get you through the wilderness to the promised land. 40 days after the final perfect Passover, Pentecost we call it. God gave not the law, but he gave his spirit, we read in chapter 4 here. He gave his son to redeem us, to adopt us. Then he gives his spirit to witness to our adoption and to prompt our prayers. I've got a friend who, when he prays out loud, and I assume when he prays silently, starts his prayers with the words, with the word, with the address, Dad. That's how he prays, Dad. When I said earlier, Father is the Christian name for God, it's built on what we read about here in this passage, that the Spirit of God prompts our prayers and is the one who actually prays for us and teaches us how to pray Abba, Father. We don't have any idea how startling that was to hear. Not only what Paul wrote, but what Jesus taught us to pray. That we're going to pray together in a little while. And you know it. It's the Lord's Prayer that begins with our Father. Don't try this today together. Somewhere later on, that address, by the way, was not simply the way you get to the prayer. It's the way you are to pray the prayer. So sometime, take all those petitions in the Lord's Prayer and insert the word Father with every petition, with every request. Father, hallowed be your name. Father, give us our daily bread. Father, forgive us of our sins. Father, would you meet us? It's an address. It's how we approach him. There's an intimate, confidential affection. Paul Miller, writing about this, says about the spirit that God has given. He has sent his son. Now the son has sent the spirit to teach us to pray. He's given you a new voice. It's his own. He has replaced your badly damaged prayer antenna with another one, the spirit. The spirit is not assisting us to pray. He is the one who is actually praying More specifically, it is the spirit of his son praying. Jesus' longing for his father becomes my longing. We try to whip ourselves into some place where we believe God might listen to us. But that's getting it all wrong. The God, the Father who sent his Son has given you his Spirit and he is the one who longs for the Father and we step into that with him. Well, let me see if I can bring this home. Paul does. You won't notice this unless, you, um, unless somebody points it out. And so it's, this morning it will be me. But chapter 4, verse 7, Paul suddenly shifts 
from second person, plural, y'all, to first person, plural, you. Um, it's been pointed out that Paul right here is pointing his finger. <laughs> it, it's not the person next to you, it's to you that Paul addresses this. And until you have heard this word about identity, the message has not gotten through. And here's what it looks like. When God turns his gaze to you and united to Christ, you are always under his loving gaze. But when God turns his gaze to you, Love swells in his heart. You're my son. You're my daughter. And the, and the great irony that we miss is Christ loves his sons and daughters no less than his only begotten. The love of God for the Father is the same quality and extent and depth Height and depth, our deepest, our highest longing and our deepest need is to know that we have a Father who looks at us and love swells in his heart for you, who are in Christ. And where you find your identity determines how you live. Let me see if I can show you. If you understand that God is your Father, and that is unchanged. That's not up for grabs. That's the truest truth about you and God. He is your Father. That handles, that, that, that deals with the way we handle criticism. You know, when criticism comes your way, what it really ultimately depends on is the value that you place, the weight that you place in that criticism. And when you know that whatever the world says about you or to you pales in comparison to the one expression of value and significance, it creates a poise in your life where you can hear the criticism and not be crushed by it. Because there's, it's not... I don't care what other people think of you. It's what you think of you. No. Don't care so much about what other people think of you. Because God delights in you. It shapes the way we handle criticism. It shapes how we treat others of different ethnic groups. When we recognize that in Christ we are one. It affects how we respond if we are slighted or ignored. Here's the bottom line. To what degree? Today, what, to what degree do you see God as your father? Do you see yourself as his son, his daughter? On a scale of one to ten, where do you, where do you land That's, a, that's the kind of question I frequently ask myself with delight because my answer to that question doesn't determine the direction of my life, 
It doesn't determine the end of my life. It simply determines my experience of the work of God in my life. And what Paul is after today, or what I'm after, I guess, in some ways, is that whatever that number is, whether it's a three or a, maybe it's even a seven, that you would understand that you would be right to say 10. You're not stretching the truth. You're stepping into the truth when you say 10. <laughs> That's who we are. We're 10s. <laughs> in that score count, we're 10s, that the Father delights in us, and He wants us to see that. And He is patiently waiting with us and, and moving toward us to help bump that number up. And that number may be bumped up today as you stand and take bread and wine in your lips, to your lips, knowing that it was the work of Christ that you add nothing to. It's a gift that he gives to his sons and daughters, made his, made his own by faith. Someone said, sometimes through the Spirit you can hear God make a statement of unconditional, permanent, intimate love. Sometimes you just don't know about God's love in your heart, but you can actually hear God saying, you're my daughter, you're my son, I love you. I would go to infinite cost and infinite depths not to lose you, and I have. And every time you sense his embrace, you'll be the slightest bit more ready to face whatever life has in store for you. John Stott wrote these words almost 50 years ago. Our generation is busy developing a philosophy of meaninglessness. It is fashionable nowadays to believe or to say you believe that life has no meaning, no purpose. There are many who admit that they have nothing to live for. They do not feel that they belong anywhere, or if they belong, it is to the group known as the unattached. They class themselves as outsiders, misfits. They are without anchor, security, or home. In biblical language, they are lost. Now, he may have had in mind when he wrote that films like Rebel Without a Cause. <laughs> but you know what? Someone could have written those words yesterday. Unattached. People looking for a place to land. Well, as I told you, Jason Bourne did find his identity, but it was only when certain threads came together. And the same is true for us. We don't know who we are until certain threads come together. Our, our longing for community, to be a part of a family, our, our longing for rootedness in history, to be a part of something bigger than this fleeting moment. Our longing for the intimate love of the Father, which resides in each one of our lives. That there would be someone who moves toward us continually. Who embraces us and welcomes us into his own love.
And that's God the Father. When I am united to Christ by faith, and not until or unless, when that occurs, it puts me where I belong. It relates me to God, to to mankind, to history. It enables me to answer the most basic question, who are you? You see, in Christ, I'm a son of God or a daughter of God, you can say. In Christ, I'm united to all the redeemed people of God down through the ages and throughout the world. In Christ, I find my feet and I come home. That's what Christ offers. That's what Christ extends. That's the, that's the ID card that you, that you live with and circle around and reorient your life from time to time because tomorrow happens. And as a friend of mine said, this stuff leaks. It leaks. So I need this reminder, and Paul gives it to us here. You are a son of God. You're a daughter of the living God. Because of the finished work of Christ and a Passover lamb that was slain for you. You see, every home contained either a dead lamb or a dead firstborn. And in Christ, we have a lamb who gave his life, the firstborn who gave his life for the sins of the world. And that lamb is the one who was raised. And from the right hand of God the Father in heaven today extends an invitation to you. He is the host of the table that we gather around. Sons and daughters, Descendants of Abraham, recipients of the promise, and the world to come. Let's pray. Father, would you meet us here this day? Would you lift our gaze to see the fullness of who we are and what you are, all that you are and who you are and what you've done for us in Christ? Father, thank you that you have taken on yourself all of those things that would be barriers, and you have buried them. And in Christ, we have not only access to the, to the one who owns and rules this world, he is our Father in Christ. So meet us at this, your table, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.